Welcome to Talking Tuesday. Today we are going to be talking about communication specifically for quants. So for those of you that don't know what a quant is, a quant is somebody that does math and stats um, applied to finance using programming languages like Python, R, or SAS, for example. Uh, quant communication, though, is very challenging. I think it's very challenging just from the surface for a lot of people to understand. Um, quant finance is very niche and it's very specialized. And so often um, it's a very technical area and a technical field to work in. And being able to communicate um, just comes from the challenge of the fact that the material is not known to everybody. So quants and quant finance, what we actually do here, we build models like I mentioned. So somebody comes out and says, Dimitri, I need a model to predict some sort of price or I need a model that's going to predict, I don't know, sales or revenue over a specific time period. And so you start getting into nuanced details of building out models and trying to communicate these things. And it starts to get challenging for a few reasons. One, you have the technical component between quants. So one quant talking to another quant, um, you have a few communication barriers and things that occur here. Um, often quants come from very different backgrounds. So you might have one that has, I don't know, let's say an econometrics PhD, one with a statistics master's and one with a quantitative finance master's. Uh, all three have covered different areas of modeling, uh, but often they might have different terminology between the three. And this gets especially confusing when you add in those who have taken machine learning classes because the data science and machine learning community have reinvented the wheel on almost everything. So instead of calling something like a dependent variable and an independent variable, uh, we have like a target. And I don't even know what they would call the uh, independent variables here, maybe drivers. Um, another example is going to be called development data, which is the data you develop your model on. And then you have validation data and out of time data. Um, the machine learning world calls this training, uh, typically validation and testing. So again, similarities, but differences as well. And so when you start to get into technical jargon, um, there's just going to be differences between what people call things. So for example, I recently was looking at feasible generally squares and I just can't find Python's package for it, and how dare Python not have this package. Um, and then I realized it's because they call it weighted least squares, which is just a more practical explanation of how feasible generally squares is implemented. And so knowing these technicalities and these differences can often just create barriers between the quants. So that is one level in itself. Now, if you go into this with quants at another perspective or another level here, uh, now when you have to explain something complicated to someone who is a non-quant, often they don't care why you have a problem, which is one of the communication issues. They just want it solved. And so then when you have to explain to them that the problem can't be solved or that the solution you found isn't a perfect match and this is why, the problem comes in the this is why section. Because now as I'm starting to go through like, I don't know, there might be an issue with like data sampling and data quality and they're like, okay, I get it. You have a limitation in the data. And then you start to explain like modeling, for example, on I had heteroscedasticity in this set. And so we had to move away. We couldn't use, I don't know, ordinarily squares. We had to move to weighted least squares. Uh, then they start looking at you like, okay, one, what is heteroscedasticity and why do I care? Uh, two, what is OLS? Three, what is weighted least squares? Why are they different? How are they different? Do I even care? And unfortunately, most people on the non-quant side don't stop to ask that. They just sit there like this and they go, uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to build a, a model for us. 
Okay. And it was going to be called ordinarily squares and now it's going to be called weighted least squares. Awesome. Great. Build that model. Let's make sure it works. I mean, <laughs> that's really what happens. And unfortunately, a lot of times, uh, especially when you have junior quants, they start to have questions like, okay, well, this model violates a bunch of assumptions. Are you okay with using it? And really that that question probably should not be asked to people who are non-quants. It should be asked to other quants. Um, but if it is asked to a non-quant, they don't know what to say. Like, well, like what? Like, what am I supposed to, like, what do you want me to ask? Like, it's just a, like, they don't even know where to start. And I get that because I've, I've been on the other side of other technical teams and I'm looking at them like, I don't know. I just don't know what you said. Like, <laughs> it's the whole list of terminology. You're going to have to explain everything to me. Um, so there's always this technical piece of this. And this is always a challenge, I think, above and beyond most things. Now, there's another layer of communication issues, which is going to be a cultural and social communication issue here, which most people don't realize. So most quants, especially like in the United States, are not actually American. Most of them are born abroad in China, India, which are the two main countries almost like 70%, 80% probably come from. Then you have some that are European, some that are South American, some are from Africa, uh, and some that are just from other places in the world. Um, but how they get here is the fact that there's not a lot of Americans doing quantitative finance. And so they come to the United States to get a graduate degree, which is the minimum requirement to be a quant. Um, and they get this degree and they learn in the United States. And of course, English is most likely not their primary language. And then they have to find a job and work here. And so when you have teams, you have this one, a lot of people just notice right up front, like, oh, Dimitri, there is a, you know, like a language barrier, right? That's the first thing they think. Oh, there's an accent, there's a language barrier. And yes, this is one part of this social cultural piece. Um, and why I group this together is because sometimes they just can't find the words to explain the idea clearly. Um, now, a big advantage when you work with these internationals year after year after year after year, you start to really connect the dots and to connect with them on a different social level. So I start to understand how they think about things and how they pitch these ideas. Because communication often is very different in different countries, the way the languages are structured, for example, uh, what sorts of things go in what sorts of order. And yes, they try. I've had colleagues that have been here for I don't know, 20 plus years, and there's still just nuanced differences. And a lot of times they're cultural um, also in the sense that uh, there are sayings that do not translate or there are sayings they don't understand. And so I had a boss <laughs> who uh, was actually from India, uh, but she learned a lot of U.S. sayings. I believe she was raised kind of around the world in different areas, lived in the U.S. for quite some time as a kid as well. And she would always have these sayings and they were like U.S. sayings. Some of them were even older. Like I had to look them up even as an American. Um, but one of my colleagues would always be like, what does that mean? And so often there's a communication barrier on that side as well on the cultural front where it's like there are sayings, there are words, there are things that are used that just don't translate very well. Uh, and even when you Google them and you have to like find um, the meaning of some sort of saying, a lot of times you don't fully get the idea, especially if you come from another culture here. So there is a cultural and social aspect in that as well. Um, also, there are different values, which is, I think, something that's important to realize, too, when communicating. Uh, sometimes you can communicate something like as an American, so something that's really pro-business. Uh, and, you know, you might say, like, you know, oh, profitability is down by 10%. Uh, we also are having layoffs because of this and this and this reason. And we have, I don't know, an issue of supply chain. And 
perhaps on a cultural standpoint, the Americans are looking at the top line or the finance person or accounting person, for example, looking at the profitability. That's the thing that's like just coming out to them. Um, culturally, though, you might have other cultures that value math or something, stats more, and they're more concerned with like the supply chain issue. And is there a model behind that? And maybe they're tied into that project as well, which again might be even departmental communication issues. Um, but different things are valued more or less in different countries. And so that often creates some sort of a lag or discrepancy. Um, another example, too, of cultural differences in communication um, are expectations. So this is a weird one, but something I've learned over the years, which is some cultures do not value timeliness. I know this seems odd to many Americans, um, but when you say you have a meeting at 9 a.m. and they show up at 9.30 or 9.15 or something, they think that's normal and that's that's okay. Um, and again, this might even be a firm culture. Some firms are okay with you showing up like a little bit afterwards, like everyone kind of starts a little late always. Um, but there are cultures where time just doesn't really matter that much. Like you have a 9 a.m. appointment and they will show up sometime around 9-ish. Could be 9.30, like I mentioned. But again, it's a communication issue in this instance. It's not necessarily like, oh, they're lazy and they just don't show up on time and they, you know, yada, 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 they're a bad employee. Um, it's just there's a cultural difference here. So that is another issue that you're going to face and run into, especially with quants, because we are so international uh, that it is challenging I think a lot of times for other departments, other people um, to kind of sync together. And even internally with quants, when you have an American, a Chinese, and an Indian, uh, and someone from, say, I don't know, like a Brazilian, for example, and I don't know, an Italian. We'll throw them all in the, the mix here. Uh, you have this mix of people, and maybe a Nigerian on top of it, too. I'm trying to get as many countries and continents as possible. But you put them all in this, this team, and they're all working together. Um, they're going to have communication issues and expectations just based on that cultural piece here. So there's a social cultural aspect that's going to play in on multiple levels. And so as a manager and as a teammate trying to dissect the issues and structures and all these complicated things are things that are just not taught in books. Okay. And then on top of this, we go back into more traditional communication issues and communication styles, which are going to be kind of like your personality type, your communication types, I've been trying to find books online now and read through them because I often feel like I say things and then people just don't do what I ask, right? And then in my head, I am infuriated. How would you not get that done? I have already asked you to do that three times now and I'm getting real agitated. And then I start realizing, okay, maybe I'm not communicating very clearly, right? So I'm trying to go back and look at these things more from a personality perspective on, um, Again, how do people differ? How do people respond? So some people might need direct communication. I'm very blunt. I like it to be blunt. Um, when people ask me for ideas and things, for example, they ask like, how is this going? I'm going to be brutally honest with you most of the time. I don't like when people sugarcoat things. I think it's a big waste of my time. And so these are communication differences within personality. So somebody else might sugarcoat things and you ask them, how's like this project going? How's this team going? And they say, well... It's going pretty good. You know, we've got this done. We got that done. We're making good success. You know, we have a little bit of an issue uh, getting this timeline or whatever. And then they go on about, you know, but we have all these things lined out and the project's going great. So in my head, I'm hearing, all right, great. There was like you know, 10 things mentioned, nine things are great. There's one slight problem. Sounds like no big deal. Um, perhaps though, if I was to pitch the same thing and I was the person in the same situation, it would be nine problems and one good thing. And again, that's just because I like to be a little more analytical, a little more blunt, a little more to the point. I don't want people guessing as much. 
Um, but this again might be now uh, construed from the other party. So I'm say like a pessimistic problem solver. It's kind of my, <laughs> my blunt strategy in life. Uh, I'm looking for all the problems because I need to solve the problems. When people come to me and they want to know how things are going, I want to show them all the problems we have so they fully understand the issues. Now, this often comes off to most people I've dealt with, which is why I've had to start dialing back my communication style a bit and sugarcoating things a bit more, is that most people can't handle that. They think, oh, wow, the world's melting down. You can't handle it. You don't have things figured out. Uh, you hate our team. You hate our culture. You don't like the people. You don't like, they start like going into all these negative things that you're like, we have all these issues. They view that as like a really big negative where on my communication style, I'm a little more blunt with people. Um, I like to just say, you know, these are all the issues. These are all the nuanced details. These are the challenges. So people fully understand the lift, the ask, right? What you're asking them to do, why it's a challenge, why it might be delayed. So basically you're prepping them for that. But again, I can see the other perspective of this too. So trying to figure out on the communication styles, the personality differences is a huge thing. And there was a book, I don't recall where it was. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but there was like colors like blue, yellow, red, and green, I think, which are like communication types. Um, it was talking about how, you know, some people don't like that direct approach. Some people like to be, you know, kind of encouraged and supported, which I get. Um, but other people do, other people do better with a more direct approach. Um, other people might, you know, need a little bit more conversational piece to this. Maybe they need to really talk things through, uh, where other people are going to be shortened to the point and they're just looking to get in and get out and get things done here. So taking into consideration, I think other people's preferences in the communication process is important. Um, it can be frustrating for people on both sides because things either seem forced or they seem insincere or they don't seem like they really understand the problem. They're not maybe listening as well as you expect them to listen and how you expect them to listen and what you're looking for. Uh, these are all kind of critical things to think about when you're communicating as well as going to be these different layers here. And then finally here, I'm going to mention a little bit of tidbit that I've kind of picked up and learned. So I try to read books here and there, but one of them that has kind of stuck with me over the years is a book called Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. Um, I don't even know who the author is right now, but in this book, one of the key takeaways I took was like knowing exactly what you want when you're doing the communication. And I think a lot of times people like to just feel heard, like they want just the support. They're not actually asking for anything. And then after the meeting, like they don't get anything out of it. Like they're not, I don't know, no one offers them a solution or nobody comes in and fixes a part of their issue. And then they feel like they're unheard. I think part of this, so from this takeaway from this book, and i I've definitely struggled with this as well is I will say a few things and then the other person responds back with a few things and then nothing happens. Uh, often it's because when you're going into the communication, it's trying to line out exactly what you want and ex like expressing that to that person, right? Like I have this problem. I need this. Can you get this for me? Right, but having the expectation in your head, like this is what I need from them. This is what I'm asking for. I think a lot of times in the communication process, it's more or less like, especially when you're timid or you're new, um, it's like, well, it'd be kind of nice to do this. It'd be kind of nice to do that. And you're kind of like, you know, putting a little bit of a buffer, like if I could get this, that would be great. When in reality, you might be needing to go into the conversation and thinking about beforehand, what do you need, right? Is there something specific you have to have? Are there things that are nice to have? 
right? And what are you going to get out of that conversation? And so I think some people just have conversations to have conversations. And I think often there's that miscommunication piece as well, uh, where you're wanting something out of that conversation. The other person or other parties wanting something out of the conversation. And then you both kind of come in unprepared and uh, nothing gets done. There's no value added. Now, when communication styles link up, these weird occurrences that seem like nothing gets done, oddly both parties are somehow satisfied, a communication was made, and something comes out of this. Uh, but often there are so many different types of people, especially when you look in the quantitative finance space, uh, we don't tend to fit uh, business people and other types of departments very well. And so being able to align and grow and change your communication style uh, and then adapt to the different types of people is a huge strength uh, in the quant finance space, whether you're someone who's just, you know, on the bottom building models, wanting to really focus on being like an entry-level employee or an analyst, uh, getting those promotions, working your way through the chain, uh, or even someone who wants to just run teams and departments and be more on the management side of these. Uh, there are communication that has to go on constantly for every employee and trying to look at these nuanced differences and details and trying to understand them, I think is challenging. I know I struggled with this my whole career. Um, I always find new challenges, new peoples, new styles, new personalities. Um, and then you, I read these books. And I'm like, oh, okay, like they fit into this category or this category, but also there are nuanced differences and perspectives. And then also your, you know, approach to these problems can make a big difference on the communication itself and the outcomes from that. So Anyways, I would really encourage you guys to look at communication. I know this is often overlooked by education uh, programs like masters and undergrads, for example. Um, the, the training they give you at work is often very like chipper and like the world is four categories and magically everyone's going to fit into it. Uh, but I think if you can look at this kind of from my perspective here in this episode of looking at there are social and cultural differences, there are technical differences, there are personality and trait differences here. So a lot of HR training will focus on like the personality differences, but it will completely skip over social, technical, cultural, and all that typically. Uh, so try to take all these different pieces into perspective um, I think a lot of times if you just put your best foot forward, uh, you try to be honest with a person and a little bit more upfront. Uh, often you can explain like, hey, I'm really struggling, I don't know, to work on this or to work on that. Uh, I've been trying to get this done, but I can't quite get it done. You know, and trying to ask for their advice often will kind of help get them out of their shell a little bit and help kind of get the conversation going on what you need um, and why you need it. So anyways, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And as always, until next time.